Located at Toronto Reference Library, the Bram and Bluma Pell Salon is a vibrant literary and cultural commons in the heart of the city. It is a place where writers, thinkers, artists, and innovators from around the world gather for conversation and debate. For more information, please visit www.tpl.ca forward slash A-P-P-E-L S-A-L-O-N On Monday, February 1st, Jan Martel, author of Life of Pi, visited the Appel Salon to talk about his new book, The High Mountains of Portugal. Here is Jan Martel in conversation with former CBC journalist Tina Shrabotniak. Okay, onwards, Mr. Martel. So what was your interest in writing about Portugal? Uh, well, it happened to be the first country I visited on my own. Uh, my parents were diplomats at the time, and they were posted in Spain. And so I, one summer I was going to visit them, and instead of going directly to Madrid, I thought I'd stop in Portugal and travel on my own. I'd never done that. I'd always traveled with them, so mm-hmm. sort of surrounded by you know, parents or guardians of some sort. And this was the first time I traveled entirely on my own. So I think I was 19 or 20, something like that. And so it was a slightly terrifying, totally exhilarating uh, thing to do. And Portugal's a lovely country, like all these European countries. People live there for thousands of years. Yeah. And it shows, uh, for good and sometimes for worse. Um, and so I was just, I, it, it marked me. And I've noticed, in fact, that Portugal appears in, bizarrely, in most of my books, because self, part of it takes place in Portugal. Uh, Portugal is mentioned in Life of Pi. The author's going to India to work on a novel set in Portugal. Oh, that's right, yeah. Yeah, and then uh, this one. So it... Uh, but also for symbolic reasons, this novel is, once again, a literary exploration of faith. And in this, cause in this case, I look at Christianity. And so I wanted a country that was on the margins of things to some extent. And so just as the Holy Land, Palestine, was on the margins of the Roman Empire, Portugal is sort of on the margins of Europe. And yet important things happened in, 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 in Palestine. Important things happened in Portugal, too. So I wanted somewhere sort of on the edges of things. Yeah. I want to talk about faith because it's such an important part of the novel, uh, but loss is another um, theme of the book. So it's three linked stories, uh, and uh, they're set some years apart, coming up to pretty much current times at the end. But in the first story, uh, and all three stories are linked by uh, each of the characters has suffered a devastating loss, the mm-hmm. lo- loss of a wife specifically. So each of these men has, is, is really undone by the grief he feels over the loss of his partner. Um, so I just wondered what interested you about telling that story of, of these linked stories of loss. Well, it strikes me that stories start when something happens, and usually it's dramatic. So I wanted, um, I think we start telling stories when we're unhappy, in fact. I think perfectly happy people have only anecdotes to share. <clears throat> Whereas unhappy people have stories to tell. So I, um, That's why we drink. There we go. <laughs> so in each one, you're right, I premise great loss. And then I was interested in what do we do with that? Because it's an interesting question. What do we do with our suffering? What do we do when we've lost something? We're, it's easy to be happy. Mm-hmm. People don't need guidance when they are happy. They need guidance when they are unhappy. And so I was interested in what do people do with, with, with suffering? Where do they go with it? And my interest in faith, I'm not, my background is not at all religious. I don't practice any religion. Um, I became interested in faith when I, when I started writing Life of Pi, because mm-hmm. I noticed on this trip to India, the second time I'd been to India, for the first time I noticed positive aspects of faith, how they, beyond this material chemical reality, uh, people who have faith posit an underlying divine reality that uh, sustains this material reality. And that's an extraordinary leap into something that, for which there's no proof. 
And we are generally so driven by factuality, by pragmatism, by reason. I was, while I was in India, suddenly struck by this extraordinary leap of faith that people who have some kind of faith make. And, and religious faith is the most far out there because it really posits something extraordinarily grand. Whatever religion it is, it posits something for which none of your senses can directly attest to it. And so while I was in India, I became interested in that, and I've continued to want to explore it. And so one of the things that I noticed with faith, one of the great um, um, advantages of having some kind of religious faith is it tends to make suffering somewhat easier to deal with. It still hurts any kind of suffering, but people I've noticed who have religious faith manage to place it, mm -hmm. at least theoretically, in a greater framework. You know, the standard response of religion to suffering, to evil, is that God's ways are unknowable, but there is some sort of plan of which one small part of the canvas, one small touch of color is called suffering. But if you could see the whole canvas, it would somehow make sense. And we can understand that because our understanding is so limited. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, that kind of, of thinking, you know, Richard Dawkins would tear to shreds and laugh at. Uh, but that's all fine in a public, sort of, when you're talking about public discourse. But in the privacy of our own little lives, that's, that kind of thinking is transformational. And some people, their entire lives are driven by those acts of faith, by believing that indeed suffering makes sense. And it just makes their, you know, their ability to let go, makes it easier to let go. You know, I remember, sorry, just one last thing. I remember, I've forgotten this, but one of the things that got me interested in writing Life of Pi was there was a tragedy, I guess in the early, late 1990s, early 2000s, of a young girl in Victoria who was beaten and left to drown by her friends. Oh, yes, the 14-year-old <clears throat> under the bridge. That yes, Rena Verk. Yes, Rena Verk. Rena yeah. Verk. And I remember the very first thing that her parents said, the very first thing, you know, within a day or two when the media had got to her, the very first thing they said is, we forgive her killers. Wow. And I was thinking, and it turned out, and I was, I was sort of astonished, and it turned out that her parents were, I think, Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, sort of far out evangelical Christians. And initially when I hear that, I'm sort of unsympathetic to that kind of uh, evangelical Christianity. But I thought, wow, if that allowed them to say that so soon, mm -hmm. there's got to be something going for that kind of thinking. And you know, you see that all the time if you read the obits and they'll, they'll have those, they're kind of, I say hallmark card things, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but you know, gone to a better place. Yeah. And there is a sense that, especially I guess if you believe in the afterlife, that uh, you know, th this was a stage, your life was a stage, and now you're moving on to something else. And I think, exactly. it, I think you're absolutely right. I think death is far more palatable to people who believe and to people who love them who also believe, who can put it in, in that context. Right, and so I was interested in looking at that. And so in this novel, I wanted to have three people who are suffering and three different reactions based on their ability or inability to have some kind of faith. Um, so each of the, so the, the novel's in three parts. It's funny how you write something with one intent. To me, it's one seamless novel. It's just divided into three parts. Whereas I notice people start seeing it as a novel in, in, you know, in three novellas or in three. Mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. me, it is one seamless whole, just having it divided in three parts. But each one has a different emotional tone based on the character's ability uh, to, do, to perform leaps of, uh, leaps of faith. Yeah. Your first guy doesn't fare very well, Thomas. We start, or Tomas, perhaps. Yeah. So we meet him in 1904, and um, his wife has died, and so he's taking to walking backwards everywhere he goes because he's turned his back on God. And it's such an evocative metaphor because it this is, is the yeah. way he's chosen to live his life now. He's turned his back on God, and he, he can't seem to, he just can't seem to, to find his way out of this sorrow at all. I mean, it, No, and I think that's, 
I remember for a few years I was a volunteer in palliative care, palliative care in Montreal at the Royal Victoria Hospital. So every Thursday morning I'd spend four or five hours with people who were um, either very actively dying or close to it, so within hours, days, or weeks of dying. And I didn't meet very many religious people there among the dying, but those who were, I noticed them to be slightly more contemplative. And those who weren't in their majority were paralyzed with fear, mm -hmm. were just soaked with fear of what was happening to them. Despite the fact that surely by the time they got to the, there, they should, should, must have had time, some time to think about their demise, and yet they had no tools. They had absolutely no tools. And that's, that's I said once again, that's one of the things that strikes me about there's at least something in faith that's interesting to, dis to discuss. Whether you believe it or not is something else, but at least to, to examine that discourse is, is something that is, that is, that is endured with me since but, life of But yet it hasn't made you become a person of, of particular faith. I mean, all, all well, this examination you've done hasn't made you think, hey, there's something No, there. I broadly speaking do have faith. I choose to believe that this all makes sense, that if a meteorite hit us right here, that it would somehow lead to better things. So I, choose, <laughs> I, choose, I choose to make that, to have that belief, for which I have absolutely no proof. But yeah. you know what? It, but that's I'm, the whole point of faith, I'm, no Exactly, proof, right? that's why it's called yeah. faith rather yeah. than self-interest or pragmatism, you know. It is an act of faith, yeah. and I just find it makes it easier to let go. It makes it easier to not, you know, to, to not sweat the, the big, to, to sweat off, what's the expression, sweat the little things, whatever, to yeah. let go of the little... Sweat the small stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It makes it easier. Um, this book also has animals, specifically a chimpanzee, mm. and of course, Life of Pi so famously had that boatload of wonderful animals. Um, what is it about telling stories with animals in it that is, that is so appealing for you, or so right for you? Of a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, one... Crassly, no one else seems to use them. <laughs> they're I mean, all yours. They're, exactly. There's just not that many. There's that one American novelist about the one for elephants. There's something, um, Water for Water Elephants. Water for Elephants, yeah. You know, um, there's Colin McAdams a couple of years ago had a novel with ch a chimpanzee. Um, bizarrely, adult fiction for grown-ups just doesn't feature that many animals. So, first of all, I do feel like, you know, good, I'm, I'm not competing with everyone else doing the same thing. That's one, that's one thought. Um, at a deeper level, I, I use them because they are wonderful characters. We tend not to be cynical about wild animals, whereas we're very cynical about mm -hmm. ourselves. So imagine you're a novelist, you want your reader to read your story. If you present a character that is appealing, that's half the battle won and the reader continuing to read. And animals, we tend to be attracted to animals. We tend to project a lot onto nature. You see a jungle, you see a picture of a, a jungle in Thailand, your reaction is not horror because it's a bloodbath. In fact, a jungle is a bloodbath for all the little creatures living there. No, you look at the green, at the, you know, uh, Yvonne's leaving for Hawaii. It's warm, it's tropical. We project a lot onto those sort of places because we feel we're sort of constrained by civilization and we project freedom onto nature, beauty, uh, uh, all of which is sort of slightly nonsense. Uh, animals are not free. Uh, it's a very regulated uh, atmosphere of a jungle. But we project a lot onto it, and that's, once again, useful for a novelist. I, I'm appealing to you somehow, uh, I'm writing about a place that you yearn to be in somehow, to be unfettered by civilization and be free. So it's just a very um, appealing uh, narrative vehicle, the animal. And the reason I use animals and, and religion is it just... First of all, it, it happens all the time. Like in Hinduism, there are loads of animals. If you think of Ganesh, who has the face of an elephant, Hanuman is a, is, a, is a monkey. Every Hindu god has an animal carrier. So uh, Vishnu has um, Nandi the bull. 
a Ganesh has a rat. So in front of every Hindu temple, you'll have the, the, the sculpture of an animal. So in Hinduism, there's a lot of mixture of, between the human and the animal. So I noticed that in India. And the other thing that I find interesting, and I mentioned this at a radio interview I did, um, printed radio today, is, and this is specifically to do with part three of the novel, I've noticed that when you read about religious figures, whether it's Jesus or Buddha or other religious figures, is they have this great sense of presence, of being in the present moment. So when you read about Jesus in the Gospels, you get a strong sense that when he's talking to someone, whether it's a woman who's hemorrhaging or a leper, that he is fully talking to them, that he is fully invested in their being and talking to them. He's fully focused on them and addressing them in the totality of their humanity. He's right there, right then, for them. And same thing with Buddha. It's a, very, it's a common Buddhist precept, you know, precept, live in the present mm -hmm. moment. Well, that's a divine quality you often see in religious figures. It also happens to be an animal one. Your pet dog, when you call it and it looks up at you, is right there, right now. It is fully open to you, looking at you with all its being. It's probably just hoping for a treat. <laughs> but nonetheless, it is in the present moment. And it's a very animal-like quality not to be preoccupied about the past or the future. Now, animals have a limited capacity to imagine those. I mean, those of you who've had dogs probably have had that experience where your dog is sleeping and it starts to suddenly mutter. So it's having some sort of dream, perhaps a nightmare. So it is, it is imagining a state in which it is not at the present moment. It is imagining an alternate reality. And of course, once you've been gone for the day and you come back, your, your dog will recognize you. So therefore, a past event is linked to a present one. So you have a limited capacity to, to, to recall past events, past encounters. And they perhaps have a limited ability to contemplate the future, but it is very limited. Basically, animals live in the present moment, like Jesus, like Buddha. Hmm. So I found something oddly animal-like in Jesus and something Jesus-like in animals. <laughs> and then we're in the middle. We're in the middle, obsessed by the past and worried about the future. And we seek to be in the present moment, like Jesus or like a dog. And we try to, but it's difficult. So I also use animals because they nicely bracket the other end of what we posit to be. Well, you know, I just was having a conversation before we came on about mindfulness, and you know, it's such a big thing now. People are, people are yeah. trying desperately to teach themselves to be in the moment. And in the book, in the third section of yeah. the book, a Canadian senator named uh, Peter, who also loses his wife, then um, falls in love, I think is not too strong a term, with a chimpanzee named uh, Odo. And uh, one of the things that he says Odo teaches him is mm. just to be still and quiet and in the moment. Exactly. Wh why is that so hard for us, do you think? Because we have big brains. I think we have big brains. And they're just always worrying away. Well, they're just full of things. We, our brains are very large suitcases full of things. And um, <laughs> it's, it's hard to let go of that baggage, yeah. you know? Um, <laughs> And that's why it's so troubling when you see, um, it's rare to see great apes in zoos because they're so hard to successfully enclose. But in those zoos where you do see a great ape and you look in the eyes of a gorilla or a chimpanzee, it is vaguely troubling because you see some form of intelligence, not as aggressive, not as uber as ours, but you see one. And it, to me, it, it, it makes me question of why do we have so, such excess of intelligence? It really doesn't necessarily do us any good. Mm. We are destroying the planet, whereas gorillas have never destroyed the planet. The, you know, animals live in balance with our planet. We aren't. Um, so clearly there is something excessive about our intelligence. And this, this capacity to entertain, 
to be obsessed with the past and entertain the future doesn't necessarily do us any good. No. So that mindfulness, that animal-like mindfulness, that divine mindfulness is something we should strive for. Do you think there are other things that animals can teach us? Mm. <laughs> no. <laughs> Just the one, but very I'm important. I think you know one. cats. <laughs> cats lick themselves clean. We're pretty good at being clean. Grooming, maybe not so much. Yeah, grooming, okay. Um, um, all right. Let's talk about home. Each of the sections is ha, has something to do with home, and there's a real hmm. sense of coming home in the in the novel. In fact, what are the titles? They're home, home. Well, you'll remember them. I have got home, them written homeward, down. Oh no. Uh, home, homeless, homeward. homeward, home. Yeah. So what's 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 that about? What are you getting at with the home? Well, um, I think it links in with, with the other things that I was saying. I mean, we, I think we're all seeking, we all seek some sense of home, by which I mean a, a sense of belonging, uh, a state of being where we feel we are home. You know, home is necessarily, or it should be, a place of comfort, of security. And so in part one, Tomas, uh, I should just say, in, Tom, in part one, the character is, is traveling from Lisbon to the very northeast, and he has very little time to get there. He's looking for an object, and his very wealthy uncle lends him an, a car. And this is a 1904, so this is a very early automobile, a 1904 Renault. So he has to drive this device, uh, of which he has no knowledge how it works or even how to drive it. It is difficult. Those of you who learned how to r r drive manual, remember those first days when you're trying to shift gears? This isn't a modern car. Imagine a 1904 Renault. It was very difficult, and so he he and in that time in those early cars they were built because they were built one by one long before Ford invented the chain line. The the little cabins were like small living rooms with proper sofas made of really high quality leather and 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 walls made of cedar panels and windows made like windows in a home. I mean this was really high luxury, and Tomas makes the observation that uh, uh, an automobile the cabin looks like a small living room. And so he makes a vision that life is really that, is trying to feel at home while racing towards oblivion. Mm. And I think there is that feeling that while we're racing towards death, we try to feel at home. And Tomas isn't at home. He's lost everything. Yeah. And he's looking for that sense, and he doesn't find it. He, he remains homeless. Um, and in, so in, in part one, you have this vehicle, and you get observations about the innards. Then in part two, you have a, an autopsy. I look at the innards of something else. But they were getting closer to home because in this autopsy, various things are revealed of a certain, to, to label it simply, magical realist things, which bring us closest to a sense of home. So the vehicle in part one is definitely a cold place, ultimately. In part two, the autopsy, despite the grossness of it, we're getting closer to home. And finally, in part three, which is called Home, it features a Canadian senator, and I wrote this, by the way, long before Mike Duffy insulted <laughs> our intelligence, uh, this Canadian senator, that section is called Home, and he, he moves to Portugal. And despite the fact that he does not speak Portuguese, uh, 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 is through and through a Canadian, he somehow achieves a sense of home in this foreign land in northern Portugal, living with this chimpanzee. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm exploring that sense of what we call home and how we, how we get to it. Um, another thing that you're, you're so good at exploring, and, and you certainly did this in Life of Pi, is the value of storytelling, about the stories we tell ourselves as a society, about the stories we tell ourselves personally. And in the second section of the book, um, one of the characters is talking about, she's trying to understand the Gospels and why so many stories were told about Jesus. And uh, the question she posits is, why 
why would truth use the tools of fiction? Um, so I wonder if you can talk about that, because I, I think you would say that fiction is a form of truth. Absolutely. Oh, I think great art is always about truth. It's not necessarily factual truth. I'll give you a perfect example of what fiction can do that, that non-fiction can't do. And it's from uh, an anecdote, something that, that the Israeli novelist David Grossman told me. So David Grossman, I just blanked out what the novel's called, the one about the Holocaust. I Anyone forgot. know? It's no? an early one. Anyway, in that novel, he posits a character who can't be killed. And so he's a, a Jew who works in one of the camps. And at one point, I think a commandant shoots him, and it really hurts, but he doesn't die. So the commandant takes him in as an assistant. And um, so he can't die. He, and I guess it's, an, it's, a, it's a symbol of the, the immortal Jewish soul that crosses the centuries and cannot die. This character, at one point, is gas. Sorry, before he's shot, I think he, he's in a gas chamber. And so, of course, he's in a gas chamber, and everyone around him dies. But he can't die. So he doesn't die. And David was telling me how in Israel, he got a bit of flack on that because he was being told, you know, you can't go there. No one has survived a gas chamber. So you are, with your imagination, going where no historian of the Holocaust can go. Now, of course, when they opened the gas chambers, there's vivid testimony of what it looked like. People clung. You know, the gas would come. Uh, um, the, gas, the, the, the gas was heavier than air. So it would come from the ceiling, but it would it'd seep down. So the, the toxicity of the air would be rising. So people would desperately try to claw their way. So they'd start stepping on bodies. So there's, imagine this horrific architecture of bodies where the last survivors were trying to get to the ceiling to, and doing that by stepping on other bodies. So imagine in, in a few seconds that horrifying uh, torment of humanity with one last person surviving seconds longer than everyone else. And imagine then all the bodies stop moving and then they open the thing. Imagine the horror of that. So there was a sense of what might have happened, but no sense of, of it in the dynamism of it happening. And so David went there with his imagination. Because a historian couldn't. Well, he said, well, I have to go. I want to go there. And he was criticized for that. And that strikes me as, as wrong. We should allow our imagination to go places where we can't go factually, because the trained imagination, the sensitive imagination, can get there and come back with news of what is beyond what we have empirically seen. So um, I think all great art gets to a sense of, of truth. Not necessarily factual truth, but emotional truth, psychological truth. So um, the greatest witness to truth is achieved through great fiction. I think um, that was one of your points in the letters to the prime minister, wasn't it? That the value Speaking of, of which, it was so nice hearing the word former associated. <laughs> former. <laughs> <laughs> that, um, that that was exactly the value of, of reading literature, of reading fiction, so that so that you could so that you could go there and come back. Absolutely, with, with I don't know how someone. It's I don't mind that an average person doesn't read. It's up to people to lead the lives they want. But if someone has power over me, I want them to have a well nourished imagination, because I mean I'm entitled to know what their dreams are about, because their dreams can be my nightmares. I want to know they are accountable to me, not only in terms of their education their financial honesty, uh, but also their imagination, because a politician must also be a dreamer. Mm. He must say, I have a dream. Let us go this way. Let us go that way. All our prime ministers until Harper were dreamers. They had a sense of where we should go as a Canadian society. Um, uh, and someone who does not read and does not travel, and I think that applies to Stephen Harper, he had never traveled to Europe before being prime minister, like George Bush. Like George Bush, exactly. And he had not, by all accounts, does not read. So how does he know about the human condition? How does he know about all of us in this room? I don't know. Unless Tom Flanagan was as 
extraordinary guru who gave him everything there is to know about the human condition. Cole's notes to the human condition. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Other than that, I don't know. So that scares me. So uh, exactly, I want to say these, listen, literature is a shortcut to wisdom. You read a book, you read a great book, it allows you to live another life. You've led the character of those lives, the, the lives of those characters in that book. And, then, and therefore you get a little bit of that wisdom. And book upon book, you grow wiser. And you never got any response. I know you got a few form letters from his office, but nothing ever from him, right? No. Did you no. ever? Did you ever meet him afterwards, or? No. I th no, no. And to well, be honest, I wouldn't so know what to say. Yeah. You know, the book is a funny weapon. I mean, I, yeah. what? what I, I'd probably get all befuddled if I met him. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, the books, the, the letters I wrote to him were sufficient to make the point that I wanted to put, to make. And what about our new guy? Are you going to send him any letters, or do you think he's better read? Uh, uh, listen, Trudeau used to be a teacher, right? Well, mm -hmm. already being a teacher means a certain openness. If you're an agoraphobe like Stephen Harper, if you hate people like Stephen Harper, you don't become a teacher. <laughs> Trudeau was a teacher, so he already was open to his students. That's already one openness. Also, he was a drama teacher, right? Yes. So he must have read some plays. So whether he actively reads now or not, it is as if he had read books. <laughs> It seems, and I'm not saying with any irony, there seems to be that openness that comes, one hopes, with reading. The idea yeah. is that art leads to our betterment, and there is an openness in Trudeau, a happiness with people, the sunny ways of someone who is not cynical, who's not yeah. afraid of the world, who, who wants to talk with the world. That, in a sense, is what art does. Now, you don't necessarily get that through reading. I mean, after all, we live in a country where there's many oral cultures. The First Nations were an oral people. They also had sunny ways. They also had wisdom. They got it by other means. So by whatever means Trudeau has got to them, he seems to have got to that sort of understanding of life uh, that art can lead to. So I have no reason to send him books. Good. Good. Plus, I have four kids. They're like four little Russian novels running around me. They keep me busy enough. So uh, I'll let other people educate. You know, per perhaps people in Alberta, they can start sending yes. him. Um, when you were a kid, you traveled around a lot. Your parents were diplomats, so you were moving around a lot. Um, what role, obviously, your parents must have been readers. They must have told you stories. So were you uh, a storyteller yourself, obviously an avid reader? Tell me about what, what you were like as a kid and how you came to be a writer. Um, I came to be a writer through writing, uh, through reading, sorry. I came to be a writer through reading. I grew up, yes, surrounded by books, and I started reading. And I just saw how wonderful stories are. They'd move me. You know, I'd read these little squiggles, and I would be moved. You, you, know, you co-create a book when you read it. You bring it to life. A book is completed only by its reader. Um, so I read books, and they moved me. And so I saw, wow, this is really good stuff. Uh, and eventually, when I couldn't think of anything else to do in life, I was terrified of the working world. Um, I thought, well, maybe I can write. And the first things I wrote were dreadful. And bit by bit, I got better. And um, I love being a writer. It's really hard. It's really, really hard writing a novel. Um, it's so enjoyable, though, because it's so creative. Yeah. So I sort of feel I sort of fell into writing. I never took creative writing. Uh, I'm not a particularly good critic of books. Um, so I sort of uh, came to it after everything else didn't work out. 
from accountant to zoologist. You were an accountant? No, no, but all you know, things you can do in a life from accounting. Oh, right. You know, oh, A to Z. That comes yeah, from, yeah, you know, yeah, aardvark yeah. lover. <laughs> After aardvark lover, there comes accountant, and then all the letters of the alphabet to zoology. I couldn't think of anything, so I said, well, you know, I like reading. Maybe I'll try to write a story. Yeah. And I started as a terrible, really bad writer, immature and everything, but you slowly get better by, by dint of, of hard work. Um, as you know, you can never make it through an interview without discussing Life of Pi. Hmm? So I have to ask you, that was your second novel. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I mean, I'm assuming when you wrote it, you thought it was good, but you must have been blown away by the reaction that it had. And I wonder if now, almost 15 years later, with 12 million copies, or probably, you know, 12.5 million in the last <laughs> half hour, um, do you have any sense of what it was that caught the wave that way? That what, what people so loved about that book? Well, likely you should ask the people here. Yes. Uh, but I would think, as far as I can tell, I think is maybe just the storyline that was original, although there's lots of other original stories out mm -hmm. there. I think maybe it was the tone, uncynical, unironic, generally. And I think it was, I think we all have a spiritual life. It's very hard to talk about it in public. Um, that's why I'm slightly uncomfortable when I talk about this one being a bit more Christianity, because I'm afraid of being mistaken for some weirdo Christian American evangelical nut which I'm not, but it is so hard to speak about, like that's why I mentioned Buddha. Why am I mentioning Buddha? I'm not a Buddhist, but I can't just mention Jesus alone, so I have to append Buddha to sort of say, you know, I'm not weird. I'm just approaching this with an open mind and an open heart. You're not it, a Republican. I'm not a Republican, I don't have a gun. Uh, it is very hard to talk about the Jesus event yeah. of 2,000 years ago without a certain discomfort. I vividly remember when Stockwell Day was, was leader of the opposition, and occasionally in the House of Commons, he would quote the Bible or quote Jesus, which he was completely entitled to do. One of the fundamental rights of us as Canadians is to believe in anything we want, whether it's Jesus, Buddha, or little green elves. We are entitled to posit any kind of magical, you can, you can have all the magical thinking you want. It's a constitutional right. So Stockwell Day saying that in the House, doing that in the House of Commons, there's nothing wrong with it. And yet, there was a clear sense of it rankling. Mm -hmm. You don't quote the Bible. You do not say Jesus says. Jesus said. It makes us uncomfortable. Um, and that, I think, is a, is a certain pity. As I said, we, 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 we have, uh, our society has triumphed because of its close attention to reason. All this technology and science and medicine and space flights that have improved us have immeasurably improved the quality of our lives. Fantastically. That's not to be denied. It's improved us 95%. But there's a 5% of slight loss. By excess of being reasonable, I think we go a bit mad. Um, we need that kind of magical thinking that art brings and also religious religion does. Whatever you posit religion to be, whether it's strict dogmatic Catholicism or Judaism or Islam or uh, namby-pamby California, yesterday's cult kind of stuff, mm -hmm. all that kind of magical thinking does our soul good. Um, and what was your question? <laughs> oh, who knows? Actually, I don't remember. Yeah. But, it, but it does put me in mind. Oh, why people like Life of Pi. Oh, yeah. Well, I remember. There we go. Yes. I think because in Life of Pi, I discussed that. We have Pi who practices three religions, and he's not out to put gays in jail or pregnant women in the kitchen barefoot. You know, he genuinely feels for that greater dimension of us. And I think that was refreshing to people. Mm -hmm. I think we all quietly yearn for some greater understanding of who we are, why we are. And we live such busy, busy lives with our work, with our children, with this, that, and the other, that we have few moments to contemplate the big, big picture. And I think because Pi 
discuss that in a sort of exotic, intriguing way, and profoundly giving you a choice. Do you believe in the story with animals or without? And that's a, a, a code for, do you want to just walk through life or dance through it? Do you want magical thinking or straight talk thinking? You know, it gave you a choice. And I think that was refreshing to readers. Yeah. But, you know, interesting, because you talk about faith, obviously, in this book, in Pi, and in your other books as well. And I think you're brave to do that, because I think you're quite right. There's a stigma attached to talking about faith in any way, because people immediately recoil in horror. Or you're going to be a fundamentalist, or you're going to be some weirdo that's going to try shove something down my throat. So you you keep coming back to it, though. So you're a brave guy. Well, artists at one point have to be contrarians. You know, you do want to... Choquer le bourgeois. You want to you want to bother people when you're an artist, and we've I think a lot of artists have done that sometimes by excess of talking about sex or violence, like the Quentin Tarantino mm-hmm. approach, of I will show you a lot of violence. Well, at one point you become inured to that, and it's not interesting. Yeah. So my way of being contrarian is talking about something that is deeply unfashionable. Don't forget, especially I'm from Quebec, which is the most secular society in Canada. You really don't talk about Jesus in Quebec anymore. Um, so, as an artist, it's my duty, or not my duty, in this particular is my duty, but also my interest, to go against the grain, to talk about those things that people don't want to talk about. And so one of them has to, happens to be faith, and, and even organized religion. There is something magnificent about organized religions. Of course, they're homophobic, patriarchal, sexist, and all that stuff. <laughs> but there's other aspects that are quite lovely. For example, a sermon. When I was doing research for Life of Pi in Montreal, I started going to, to, to a church. And a good sermon, a good sermon is extraordinary because you, when you enter a church, it's, a, it's an environment where there's nothing to buy and sell. You can be cynical and say you have to pay money for the collection. It's peanuts. You don't have to give money. It is basically a non-commercial space. How many of those are there in our society? Um, here you can buy books at the back. You know, there's, an ever, there's always a commercial element. And we, could, we know how to navigate that, but it's lovely in a church that it really isn't. You really don't have to put money. You don't have to give any money. Um, and a sermon is, is moral, but also narrative. It takes as a starting point some quote from the Bible, some, anic- some, some parable of Jesus, and it goes somewhere. And it really is about how should we lead our lives, and who doesn't want to know about how they should live their lives. And so great sermons are really, really illuminating. So while I was doing research for Life of Pi, every week, and this was a great church, you know, really liberal Catholic, which is an oxymoron, um, but these priests were doing things that Rome would not have been pleased with. You know, they, they were sort of a progressive Christianity. And their sermons were fantastic. They were really, really vivid. So, uh, uh, you know, I'll defend that of organized religion. And there's also something, and anyone who know who used to go to church, there's something profoundly social about churches. Yes. It is a good social club. And that's sometimes necessary. As we get older, we sometimes get lonelier. Churches are, 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 are clubs where people can meet. Yeah, and it's a community larger than, than, than you and larger than your family. Absolutely. It's, it's, a, you know, it's a way to connect with other people, as you say. Yeah. Um, I'm going to turn the, um, we're going to open the floor to questions in a minute, but I wonder, um, Jan spoke um, earlier uh, before we started um, in, the, in the room back there about libraries, and I wondered if you wouldn't mind just telling us your fabulous theory about uh, the difference between Protestants and Catholics and the way they, in the way, as as we're talking about faith, and the way they view libraries. All right. Go ahead, yeah. My little quick theory, um, and uh, please plug your Catholic ears. Um, I I lived 10 years in Montreal and in all 10 years in Paris, and I vividly remember when I was uh, 11 years old moving to Ottawa from Paris, France and being stunned by the library system in Ottawa, which is like your library system here in Toronto. You have a fabulous library system. 
And Ottawa had a terrific library system. I'd go into a library, and there was a children's section, which I never knew existed. And children's librarians, people who interested in my little 11-year-old mind and what it might want to read. Paris, France, despite France being the great literary country with so many famous libraries, has, uh, famous writers, has the most pathetic library system. There are basically no public libraries in Paris. There are, but they're hard to find. In my 10 years in Paris, I never noticed one. I never noticed them. And my, my little theory, my little offensive to Catholic theories, <laughs> is that my, I, I got this from my grandmother. My grandmother, who was a devout Catholic in Quebec, uh, Quebecoise, didn't know the Bible at all. Couldn't tell me what the first line of the Bible was. Didn't know the Bible at all. Why? Because her priest was there to interpret the Bible for her. There's a suspicion of the book among Catholics. Don't think you can read yourselves. The priest will help, it, will help you understand. Protestants, as you might know, devour the Bible. Billy Graham knows it by heart. The Protestants are very much about accessing the Bible directly without the intermediary of a priest. And I think there's been a trickle-down effect that in secular society in that Protestant societies have wonderful library systems. So English Canada has terrific libraries. In Montreal, the Westmount Library is magnificent. The libraries east of Papineau are not so magnificent. In France, in Paris of all places, the only public library I was ever aware of was in the Pompidou Center, which, you know, that's the only one I was ever aware of until one day, near the end of my 10 years in Paris, I specifically needed to find one, and I finally found one looking, and it was this pathetic single floor thing, a single floor uh, uh, room, tucked away, underused, underfunded, and I think it has to do with this idea of Catholics being slightly fearful of the book. And the same thing with university libraries in France are only accessible to students. You must show ID to go to a university library in France. In Canada, English Canada, you, you go to any library in the universities. You, you can't take books out, but you can certainly consult them. Mm -hmm. So I think it has to do with that, with this the approach of the book, the book, with Catholics and Protestants, the difference. And it's trickled down to secular society. There you go. Am I going to get a There back? you go. Pretty good theory, huh? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, it's... I mean, what's not to love about the library? You know, the li libraries are magnificent places. They are. Um, I'm going to open the floor to questions now. There's a microphone right there. So if you have a question, please um, come up to it. Um, I'll just ask you while we're waiting for somebody to come up. Uh, the movie, Life of Pi, which um, I'm, I'm sure you saw. Did you like it? Did you think it was a faithful adaptation of the book, or was it not meant to be? Uh, I thought it was very faithful, and that was, in fact, nearly its, I think, its major weakness. I thought it was maybe too faithful. Um, I thought the images were magnificent. Mm -hmm. I thought the storytelling was a little bit weak. I thought the screenplay could have been stronger. I suggested to Ang Lee, in fact, I suggested to every director who was involved that he invert the order of stories. Oh. We tend to believe what we see last. Um, so in the, in the book, the story with animals comes first and the story without. Right. But because it's so short in the book, it's after 100 pages of animals, you get seven pages of not animals. Um, you know, their right weight is given. But in the movie, and that's why Ang Lee did it where you just see Pi in his bed and he talks about the other story. You don't see it visually. But I still thought that it didn't get its proper weight. So I suggested to him that you hear the story without animals first. So my idea was that the novel start and end in, in Mexico and the framing device be the interrogation between the interrogators and Pi. Um, and you get the Pacific as a flashback. You forget Canada, you forget India. And that the interrogators, before they meet Pi, go and see the lifeboat and find the gi these giant hairballs, these orange oh. furry hairballs and these little skeletons. 
And so they asked him what happened. He said, oh, my, the ship sank, and I ended up with my mother and the cook and the Taiwanese sailor, and things got bad very, very quickly, and then I had to kill them, and it was a terrible <laughs> experience. Oh, I'm so bad. And then, um, and then they, they, they the interrogators would say, well, what about these hairballs? You know, why were there big orange hairballs in your life? But we're kind of puzzled by that. And you know, there's little skeletons, and you know, they didn't look like skeletons of fish, because fish don't have four limbs. So we're kind of puzzled. And he said, oh, oh, don't worry, don't worry, meerkats. But meerkats aren't orange, and they don't have big, long teeth like, you know. Um, uh, they, no, sorry, man, mongooses, because you get mongooses on ships. Anyway, eventually they would tease the other story out of pie. He said, you wouldn't believe me. And then he said, well, try us. And then he'd say, well, actually what happened, actually what happened is the ship sank, and I ended up in a lifeboat with a tiger. Uh -huh. So invert the order of stories. So he didn't want that. And finally, I thought, so I thought the images were nice, but the screenplay was a little bit, it limped to an end. And if you've read the book, it was a nice compliment. But if you hadn't read the book, I think it didn't get much beyond a very curious anecdotal <coughs> kind of movie with fabulous imagery. It did have fabulous imagery. Okay, yeah. we have a brave questioner. Go ahead. Hi, my name is Sonia Faruqi. I want to say I'm enjoying this event. I go to a lot of author events, and this is among my favorites, so thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm an author myself. I've written a nonfiction book, and I'm currently working on my second book, which is a fantasy book. Um, it's dealing with themes of nature and the earth and the universe within a very fun sort of fantasy world. And one of the questions I'm facing is, um, how much should it be the story versus the themes? Um, I have my own sort of views and opinions that I want to put in there, um, but the protagonist has her own sort of views and opinions. And how to sort of balance the themes versus the story itself. Um, do you have any thoughts? Well, um, you get to writing a good book by writing bad ones. And you have to balance the two. You have to get it right. I have no instant answer. It, 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 it'll, it'll show in the way you write and how you're writing it. You're right, you want to balance the two. You can't be purely thematic, because then it's a lecture. And you can't just be purely, I guess, story-driven in an entertaining kind of way, because then it, it may be entertaining, but you don't give any nourishment to the reader, any things that are thought-provoking. So it's, you know, it's a magical sort of balancing. Uh, you'll have to discover it by writing it out and kind of seeing for yourself. You have to be your most critical reader. And then I suppose start showing it around. Ask friends, you know, who, and t say, to be critical. You know, is this working? You know, are you entertained? Are you, do, do, you know, that's, but it's really by trial and error. I wrote a whole bunch of very bad things before I slowly got better. Sounds good. Thank you. Thank My you. Pleasure. Any other questions? Oh, here comes somebody. Blaine, maybe we could just lower that mic a bit, so yeah. Here we go. Hello. Oh. Hello. <laughs> um, my name is Lexi, and uh, I recently watched Grizzly Man. Have you seen that? Yes, by um, Her Werner Herzog. Yeah. Yes. Um, and what you were talking about, I wrote an article about it. There's a lot of stuff um, in it that reminded me of what you were talking about. And the ultimate, like, fate of Timothy Treadwell is that he dies because he puts his faith in the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. So it, faith in dead nature is being inherently loving when in fact it's brutal and indifferent. Um, so my question is, do you think the validity of faith uh, is changed when the result is destruction? 
That's a great question. That is a great question. Um, that's what's extraordinary about a genuine kind of faith, as opposed to a delusion, is that it tends to be self-reinforcing. So I've noticed people who have faith, and this, not just religious faith, any kind of faith, whether it's faith in a person, a romantic faith, mm -hmm. or a political faith, uh, is that it tends to be self-reinforcing. So religious people who are rewarded by something good, they say, oh, God has rewarded me, God loves me. And then when bad things happen, they say, oh, God is testing me. But either way, it's self-reinforcing. Just as, you know, when you love someone, you shouldn't be a fair-weather lover. You love them for good or for bad. So they love you back, it's, it's the sunshine. And they're being kind of catty and, and, and bitchy. Well, that's the rain. <laughs> but, you know, after the rain comes the sunshine. You still hang in there. You still hang in there. So a proper faith, I think, is, is reinforcing, whereas a delusion isn't. So it always strikes me that most forcefully when you have these end-of-the-world kind of faiths that say the world will end on February 3rd. And then February 3rd comes, you know, at 12, you know, at uh, 12, you know, 01 a.m. And then, okay, the, the world hasn't ended. And finally, when it comes to 11.59 p.m. and then bing, 12 p.m. the next day, and the world hasn't ended, well, that's clearly a delusion. The world has continued. So that's the magic of faith. It has to be the one that takes into account reality and at the same time mixes in that, that post-reality kind of thinking. And that only comes, like Timothy Treadwell, you're right, had this utter delusion that grizzly bears were like large Winnie the Poohs. <laughs> well, I think that... Uh, and, he, and he paid with it with his life. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, he was up there for 13 summers. It was only a delusion at the end. <laughs> <laughs> because he was lucky. You know, yeah. he ended up on a one that was probably a rogue male, very old, worn teeth, couldn't catch fish yeah. anymore, couldn't catch anything. It was an accident waiting to happen. Mm -hmm. You know, most animals, including fabulously predatory, dangerous uh, predators like grizzly bears, are still very nervous of us. Um, and also, don't forget, they have very large territories, so it's kind of hard to come upon them anyway. Mm -hmm. And usually they're busy, and he was one single person and that unfortunate girlfriend whom you never see on yeah. camera who also died with him. Um, so it was an accident waiting to happen. Um, so you're right, he managed to last, was it 13 years that he went to see Grizzlies? Yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah, it was an accident waiting to happen. Uh, it could have happened on his first day out. I was very torn about it, like whether I admired his like boundless childlike faith or thought he was a total moron. <laughs> it was a profoundly sad story. Eh? Yeah. It's a very, yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks for your question. Hi, Anne. Well, Hello. speaking of bears, I don't know if you've seen The Revenant, but I don't believe anyone could survive that mauling by a bear in that movie. But that's not my question. Um, <laughs> Good. <laughs> as, a, as a proud children's librarian, I would like to know, um, did your parents read you books? What books influenced you? And you wrote Life of Pi before you had children. Now you have four children. How has having children influenced your writing? Uh, to answer the first, yes, my parents read to me and I started reading on my own. Uh, I think that's the only way to become a writer, is, as I said earlier, is to read. And sometimes I find creative writing courses are a shortcut that people try to take, but really you have to read those big fat books. Um, so I, I did, definitely did read. Um, as for children, actually, no because I've always wanted children, and I kept on putting it off, like we often do in our society. When we're young, I think we associate children with being shackled. We see our mothers, we see our fathers, someone being shackled by us, 
We're the ones who shackle them. And we say, well, I shackled them. Hell, I don't want to be shackled. And so we put it off as much as possible. And uh, luckily for me, as, as a man, I was, I was, I'm able to have them later. So I started very late. My first son was born when I was 46. I'm 52. So I have a six-year-old, a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and a nine-month-old. Okay, that makes me want to lie down. Yeah. <laughs> I am so shackled. I am so shackled, and I love it. Sleep, what's that? I've heard of that. So uh, it's, it's lovely, lovely, lovely having children. It hasn't influenced me directly because I always knew I wanted children. In part because I saw how much my parents loved me, so I, I realized, oh, kids are great. I always knew they were great, so it didn't necessarily come as a surprise to me how much I love my children. And um, having studied philosophy, writing, being interested in faith, none of those are very childlike or appeal to children. So. So far, I have no interest. My partner writes, my partner Alice, Alice Kuypers, who just had a book come out last week, too, is, writes for children. She writes children literature. So she does all that, and I do the boring grown-up stuff with no pictures. Let's see if in a few years, once I finish, now this book is done and I finish touring it, we'll see if I write something for children. But you know what? I'm kind of scared. I don't know how to do it. I sort of feel that I, it's like poetry. I never write poetry because I'm scared that there are no rules in poetry. There are rules in prose. You know, punctuation, sentences, paragraphs, prose, you know, plot, characters. Whereas poetry is so wildly unregulated. And I find that uh, uh, um, children's stuff also, I don't know what the rules are. I wouldn't know. How, so I'm, I'm, I shy away from it. So just, did you have a favorite children's book? Just wondering. You may not. Not no, everybody you know, does. Well, first one off the top of my head, I remember uh, Watership Down. Richard Adams. Okay. Next question, please. So, um, Life of Pi is being used a lot in um, high school curriculum around Canada. So that can be overwhelming for um, covering such a book in a few modules. So I'm wondering, what would be the one thing you would want high schoolers to take away from studying your book? Oh. Um, read it again when you're older. Um, uh, but honestly, the sing if I had to really reduce Life of Pi to a one-minute lesson, realize that life is an interpretation, that life is a choice of interpretations, that you can choose not what happens to you in life, but how you interpret what happens to you in life. And life being short, choose the better interpretation. It goes back to that question of the difference between faith and a delusion. Mm -hmm. Believe in the better thing, in the better story in your own life, because it makes for a more pleasant life. Um, so at its core, I think that's what I was trying to do with Life of Pi. In positing those two stories, a story with and one without, is to say you can either think magically, magically or you can think not magically. And frankly, you're only here for a few minutes, so to speak. So why don't think magically? Thank you. Good question. Next. So I actually have like kind of a follow-up question to that. Um, I did this book in my English uh, lecture. Mm -hmm. And my professor finished up the last lecture by uh, asking us what story we preferred. Mm -hmm. So have the class, like, we all gave our own opinions. And I was actually wondering what your favorite version of the story was. Well, that's asking like how I would vote, <laughs> private. Uh, but honestly, um, you know, I spend 100 pages telling one story, seven telling another. Um, it's fairly clear that I, I think we, we live better, calmer lies by entertaining magical thoughts, both in art and in other areas of our lives. So, yeah, I prefer the story with animals, uh, but it's up to every reader to choose. You know, I remember that I got a lot of letters, 
more from men than women, who had, you know, when they got to the second story, they had their aha moment. Ah, this is what really happened. And so that interpretation is that the story with animals is a delusion. Or is something that Pi created to make acceptable the fact that he, his, mo his mother was murdered in front of him and that he killed a man as a result. Um, and that the story with the animals is some sort of way to digest right. that. Uh, uh, um, that's one reading. Uh, I've heard the other one, where in fact, in, confronted with you know, cynical investigators who won't believe his story, he tells them a story that they will find more believable. So um, I, I prefer the more magical one. But as a, it's every reader to decide. It's, um, I found how you, how you judge Life of Pi, how you felt about it, often indicates what kind of person you are. So it's not for me to tell how people should be. So I invite readers to interpret that book, but also this one, for example, any which way they want. There is no right or wrong. There's only what sits well with you. Thank you. Okay. Thank uh, you. Two more questions, and then we'll get to the book signing. We've got a young crowd tonight. Or has everybody got a high school essay due? <laughs> uh, well, actually, I already did my high school essay. And uh, no, seriously. And uh, what, I wrote, what, I, what I wrote my essay on was um, basically the comparison of like, the story with animals and without. And um, I, I really liked the book. But when I got to the end, I was like, like I kind of feel like the story with animals, living your life that way is really dangerous and leads to a lot of delusion and issues and killings in the name of religion. And if you had like schizophrenia and you were seeing animals and stuff, you know what I mean? Like you, you can believe that, but your psychiatrist would tell you not to believe that, to stay grounded in reality. And then also like me and my friends started doing this thing where we'd be like, we'd say ridiculous things and then we'd be like, well, what's the better story? Like maybe I'm actually Anne Martell and, and you're me. <laughs> But like, what's the better story? You know what I mean? Like, okay, I, I are you? Know. Did he set you up? Yeah. No. But he paid me a lot of money. So, right. you ask, in some way, a really good question. You're asking me, how do we lead our lives? And you can, you wanna scour away the nonsense. So you can say nonsense, but it will not stick. It will not stick. So. What's fascinating about people, as, as when I mentioned about Fate House, a self-reinforcing mechanism, it is self-reinforcing because the stuff that is nonsense, the stuff that is dangerous, as you put, gets left to the side because it doesn't last, it doesn't endure. Uh, you know, the, to me, that's the difference between a sect and a, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a religion. It's not that one is truer than another. There's no proof in any of this stuff. So Catholicism is no truer than last weekend's sect in California where they all committed suicide. Um, the only difference is one has lasted longer than the other. Uh, and it's lasted because it has managed to hold on to things that, to some people, um, make them beholden to that, to that point of view of the world. You know, look, the perfect example of that would be Judaism. It is extraordinary how Judaism has endured, not only through the centuries of anti-Semitism, but especially the Holocaust. You know, uh, two-thirds of European Jewry died, and yet still they managed to endure. So there's a, clearly a case where whatever dangerous nonsense they were saying, somehow they keep on saying it to themselves because it sticks to their soul, it sticks to who they are. So I think that's the difference between the nonsense and what makes utter sense, is that it somehow can't be stripped away by what other people say. Okay, but... <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay, one follow-up. Um, no, go ahead. Okay, but I'm just like, like I'm, I'm still not really convinced because like I totally see, Life of Pi totally showed me, you know, the merits of religion. Like I to totally get how, you know, Pi like 
at least from my own kind of cynical, like nihilistic perspective, like he like his religion allows him to like you know stay on that lifeboat and like go through all that horrible stuff, but he can kind of like you know keep it mentally together through his religion. But like I just like even with like Catholicism and Judaism, like you know the religions that I'm sure benefit a lot of people, but they've also like killed a lot of people and oh absolutely, so in no way am I defending that. In no way am I defending that stuff. But you don't you think that, they go together? But you say that, but you're focusing too much on the ills of religion. You know, let's take, the, I just mentioned the Holocaust. You know, the Nazis, what they did was the culmination of centuries of Christian anti-Semitism. But the Nazis themselves, the actual butchers who killed more Jews than any anti-Semitic killed beforehand, were not at all religious. That's true. Hitler never hung out with priests or bishops the way fascist you know, people like Franco did. Hitler was a complete, they had their own sort of, I forget what it was called, they had a word for it, their own vision of, of, of the, but they were not at all religious. They okay, but what about, what about like the Crusades and like the Inquisition and like... Yeah, but I'd say those were kidnappings. It's like saying democracy is really bad because look, they elected, they elected George Bush or Richard Nixon <laughs> or Stephen Harper. There, any system will yield excesses. Uh, that's not the essence of democracy, just as burning a heretic at the stake or killing a Jew has nothing to do with Christianity. Or, you know, let's take Buddhism again. The Buddhists of Sri Lanka conducted very well a genocidal war against the Tamils, uh, a profoundly violent uh, war. You know, that has nothing to do with the spirit of Buddhism. Every system can be abused, and it has to be abusable because it has to offer you choice. It, it, to do good, you must be, also have the choice to do evil. That's a sign of a true free system. So, of course, there will be abuses, and there will always be abuses. But that's, you, you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. So, um, and I think it's, uh, it's, all, you know, it's easy to be cynical about religion when you're young, wealthy, and healthy. And you're young and healthy, and being a Canadian, you're wealthy. That's true. So when one of those three starts going away, you'll start seeing that, hey, maybe there's something to it. But I was like you when I was your age. I hated religion because of its, you know, its homophobia, sexism, patriarchy. That's all I saw. Most people know just enough about religion to hate it. You start hating it less when you start seeing what's behind that. The quiet person of faith who's not out to oppress anyone. Uh, the Gandhis, the Martin Luther Kings, in a sense. Those are the sort of mm. poster child of positive religion. Um, but there are others. Um, but I said, you just explore it when you want to. You don't need it right now, because you're immortal. When your mortal starts eroding, you know, hell, you know, you're Jan Martel, so, you know. Uh, Thank you. Um, and he's finished his essay. Okay, our last question for the evening. So I was in the same English class. Um, <laughs> Man, they're not letting you off. Yeah. <laughs> no. Um, and I thoroughly enjoyed the novel, but coming to the end and being presented with those last seven pages that made me question the reality of Pi's story kind of made me, kind of made the novel and the story lose its magic in a sense for me. And that made me think of humans in general. And in order to kind of live life with that magical sense that you said that we should, should we not question anything greater? Oh, absolutely. There's, listen, there's not a question of, you know, giving up critical thinking. It's, it's a question of putting the, 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 the horse before the cart. You know, of course you have to be reasonable, but you have to put reason at the service of faith. You know, get some kind of faith. It doesn't have to be God. It could be a party, a person, a sports team. And once you have that faith, once you have that thing you love, then you can put your reason to proper use. Reason is just a tool. Reason is a screwdriver. 
before you pick up that screwdriver and, and screw or unscrew a screw, you have to find a reason to screw or unscrew that screw. Once you have the reason to turn the screwdriver, you've got faith. And the screwdriver is the, is the is reason, is the tool that will be very effective. So a faith that has no reason is nonsense, is dangerous, as the young man said. A faith that, has, that uses reason properly is marvelous. And you see that actually, if you look at faith texts that are reasonable, because you know, believe me, people of faith are marvelously reasonable. There are texts, I mean, Hans Kung is one I can think of, one of these great uh, Catholic theologians, or was he Protestant? I mix them all up. You know, but in I read all of them. But you, there are marvels. Like you take those simplistic stories of the Bible, these ridiculous fables of, of 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 parables of Jesus or Islam. You take these apparently very simple, simplistic things. Well, if you start actually thinking, they suddenly get more interesting. I always compare Islam. Islam is marvelously simple. Islam, Islamic theologians, when they look at Christianity, they think, God, why did they get things so complicated? It's just so. Whereas Islam is sort of like chess. The rules of chess are very simple but they yield a fabulously complex game. Islam is the same thing. It seems very simple, but if you start thinking about it and applying what it says, it suddenly gets way more complicated and rich. So for example, one of the basic things of Islam is that God created the world. It doesn't seem particularly profound or thought-provoking that God created the world, but because Muslims say that, that Allah created everything, that means that Muslims, way before Christians started doing this, Muslims said to themselves, well, if God created the world, that means the leaf was created by Allah. So I should examine the leaf. And, oh, look at the leaf has a particular pattern. How interesting. So they started studying botany. Uh, uh, Allah created winds. Well, it's funny how winds move in different ways. We must study winds. Muslims were the first scientists because they, everything was the work of Allah, therefore we should study it. So the first works of medicine, the first works of anatomy were Muslim texts. You know, the reason we had our renaissance, and this is a simple lesson, you know, uh, 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 Europe was pig ignorant in its, Christian, in its Christianity during the Middle Dark Ages. What changed it? What went from the Dark Ages to the Renaissance was not Christians suddenly discovering science. It was thanks to Muslims. Muslims were sort of exploring the world, saying everything is a vala, we should explore the world. And they discovered these completely obscure texts by these forgotten Greek philosophers called Aristotle and Plato, translated them into Arabic, and then retrans they were retranslated by, into Latin by, by travelers from the Silk Road from China to Europe crossing through the Muslim world, finding these texts saying, hey, these guys are pretty smart, they're interesting, let's bring them back to Europe, retranslated them, and that gave the spark of the Renaissance. We owe the Renaissance to these people that we now reduce to ISIS fundamentalists. Islam, from its very simple precepts, led to science. So the simplicities of religion, actually, if you look at them carefully, yield a wonderfully complex vision of life. Same thing with the parables of Jesus. We tend to know the Monty Python version <laughs> of, the, of the Bible. You know, one of the things that Jesus said is you should you know, love each other the way I have loved you. Which, when you first hear it, seems simple enough, but how did Jesus love his disciples? How did he? You ask these questions and suddenly it gets deeper and deeper and deeper. Don't forget, the, the, the Bible, the, the New Testaments, the, the Gospels started in a time where most people were oral. It was an oral culture. And just as the myths of the First Nations here, on the surface seem easy, in fact are not, are very complex. Same thing with these oral stories told about Jesus. They actually are very profound. They're encapsulations of, of, of storehouses of wisdom. But you have to dig. You have to be open to them. And then they start opening up. And so the Gospels have survived so long because they are so condensed and they are so rich. But you have to sort of, as I say in my novel, they're like suitcases. You have to open the suitcase and start seeing what's in there. Um, so you have to bring that attitude uh, uh, to you. And so what's great about my long answers is I forget your question. Yeah, no, well, that's okay. <laughs> Lost in the midst of time. What school do you guys go to? 
Uh, we go to Toronto Prep School. Actually, our uh, teacher, Paul Sishi, he says he used to live next to you in Montreal. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Hi, Paul. <laughs> um, thanks very much. They were really Thank interesting you. Thank questions. Thank you very much. <laughs>